Welcome to Friends of George MacDonald, an ongoing podcast designed to introduce and discuss the author and his influence on the hosts and listeners in popular culture alike. Well, welcome everybody to another session of Making Friends with George MacDonald. Dan and James and I are all here today, and we're going to discuss general aspects of characters in MacDonald's novels, I think, primarily. Yeah, we thought maybe if we spent the time talking about what are some of the common types of characters in his novels, that that could be sort of a prelude episode to some future episodes where we might focus on some of those character types. I think probably the most common is the Holy Innocent, which you'll see exemplified perfectly in Gibby, occurs in many, many of the books. Yeah. So I I, I made a list. Um, it, take, it took like 10 minutes. So I didn't put a lot of thought into it, but I made a list of types of characters that I see recurring in the books and you call them Holy Innocents. I used the words types of Christ to me. Someone like Gibby is a type of Christ. Yep. That's good. That's uh, good. Yep. So we both identified that one. I, I think it came up in, in one of our past conversations how sutors or cobblers show up frequently in his books. There are lots of cobblers that are great characters, I think. Yep. They're also a view of the world from a different point of view, sitting doesn't he have some of them sitting at, at a window looking out on the streets of yep. where they live and seeing Be, people walk becoming, by and aware of what's going on with others? Right. Becoming wise through observation and wise, having yeah. having time to just sit and ponder while their hands are busy. And uh, getting very, very black with the wax they use, the cobbler's wax. A few other categories of characters I noticed that are recurring are atheists. A lot of his books have a character who, or more than one, but at least one, that is an atheist uh, that some of the other characters contend with. Or I guess maybe in the case of Paul Faber, uh, somebody who's, well, I don't know if you'd classify him as an atheist, but agnostic at least, who becomes somebody of faith through the course of the novel. But not entirely. Um, true. Yep. Faber is, is unique in that he doesn't have um, a big conversion. But um, he, he gets set on the road, though. Yeah. Yes. Um, one of the things I appreciate about appreciate about George is when he talks about atheist or agnostic people, um, he does so with respect. Mm, yes. Uh, and he gets the intelligence. And I know in a lot of modern media, especially from Christian outlets, um, that is not the case, or at least the things that I've right. viewed. And they set up some very weak straw men and then proceed to trample them which is disrespectful, but it also does a disservice to the honest seeker who hasn't found a faith yet. Absolutely. Um, Agreed. Never and, really falls into that. Yeah. So we can talk about each of these categories more, continuing to introduce them. I guess since I kind of took over, I'll keep taking over. Uh, another one I listed is tutors. Several books have tutors. Either the main character is working as a tutor or there's a key character in the novel that's a tutor. Another one I listed was truth seekers. So before we noted types of Christ or innocence, but some of the other, some novels have truth seekers that are usually the 
primary character, but not always, who is on their spiritual journey of figuring out what truth is. So I guess Robert Falconer would maybe be the quintessential character that fits that one, but also Wingfold and Malcolm and others, Donald. And I noted youths. Most of the fairy tales have a young boy and or young girl as the main character. And in most of the novels, the primary character or some of the key characters are really young adults. Also, the wealthy and landowners and the very, very poor. And another frequent type of character are shopkeepers. They frequently show up in novels as secondary characters, but in some cases, such as the novel Mary Marston, primary character is a shopkeeper. When talking about shopkeepers, MacDonald often talks about how shopkeepers can be honest or dishonest in the way they interact with customers, but most grandly, uh, he pontificates a fair amount about how people can perform the transaction of goods in a way that's of service to God and man. And lastly, I noted two categories, but I didn't think too much about how repetitive they are. I didn't know what to call them, so my quick note I made, I called them bad priests. (laughs) But religious leaders that aren't very positive religious leaders is what I mean by that. Such as Bascom, for example, but uh, a lot of the novels have that kind of a character. And then also there are the oppressed religious. I I use that terminology, oppressed religious. So what I mean by that is like the character Granny in Robert Falconer. She's very religious, but her adoption of religion, the way she's instituted in her life, is very oppressive to her and limits her. What else do you guys... The wise woman or wise man. Yep. And the fantasies, of course, it's it's more blatant. Um, But even in the regular novels, you get characters like Polworth, who who aren't the holy innocent, but they are wise and connected uh, to the father. And in fact, one story is even called The Wise Woman, right? So, yep. <laughs> Sometimes it's got three titles, I think, that one. but Yes, yep. Any other categories of recurring character types that I missed? Well, you have the, the vicars and the curates who are ongoing learners, it seems like, in many cases. Maybe that's on in your list as another way. Yeah, I had that in as truth seekers. Yeah. Okay. And animals as teachers, I think, show up pretty regularly. Oh, yes, animals quite often. That's a, that's a great point. Yeah, and the sea and the countryside, the moors all play a role, I think. Storms, he wow. uses those in a remarkable way frequently. An earthquake in one. Yep. So nature in general. Nature in general. Is that as vague as you can be? That's, that's vague, but the, obviously some pretty specific examples. But yeah, those are quite recurring. I think the large portion of his novels, there's at least one uh, very dramatic storm that happens during the course of the story. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. You might, I guess, if we're going along with, and then I don't object to it, if we're going along with calling nature and animals character type, then I would list one other that just came to mind, and that is the ailing. So there are quite a few characters that are ailing or ill in some way. Suffering. Definitely. Ailing or suffering. Psychologically. Physically. physically. Yep. 
spiritually in many ways. Yep. The other would be the antithesis of rural and urban characters, the characteristics of those areas and how they, the role that they play. I think the way that yeah. he paints backgrounds and explains how things look and sets mm -hmm. up certain places in a meadow yep. where they end up meeting other people at some point or the lake or yeah. uh, the castle. Generally, generally McDonald is pretty negative on the urban, though not always, but generally speaking. Well, and it was part of the period of transition. Right. So you had... Right during the Industrial Revolution. Right. What had been rural was becoming more and more urban. There's a, there's a lot of transitions in his writing. Some are, are the obvious like that, going from rural to cities. Some are just the nature of how the Scots thought of each other, um, different hierarchies that, that were transitioned to yeah. something different. And sometimes class. Sometimes it was things like in What's Mine's Mind, where you have a responsibility to the people that uh, live around you. Uh, but that's of course in what's mine is mine it's not uh so yeah so ian has responsibility but then there is also the 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 rich landowner right the yep. i can't remember what his title is but um he <laughs> he basically is taking control of the area and that's what's being contended with and the transition to uh one of the primary products being whiskey also right. played a role in that particular one but right there are lots of transitions, um, which I think is probably in keeping with George's life as he lived through many, many transitions. Mm. A lot of places and a lot of different modes of living. And tons of the things in books I think you can find reflected in his life. Um, Gibby, as we mentioned earlier, there's a story about a child holding up his drunken father, which was part of the inspiration for that. Um, there was the big storm that sank the boat, which was inspiration in another story. I mean, there's tons of these things where he would take something and then extrapolate out. Mm -hmm. Definitely. The other thing I wanted to mention about his characters is in modern literature, you can make a character as bad as you want him to be. You can make them as evil as you want him to be. You won't hear a peep about it. Um, that's just some people are like that. They're as evil as they are. If you make a character too good, even in George's time, then there's some immediate objections. Um, and I always thought that was an interesting um, juxtaposition because at no point is someone saying, oh, no one could possibly be that evil, but you will hear people say that about George's good characters. How could they possibly be that good? I guess I'll confess, I feel that way about Gibby. Um, yeah. I know Sir Gibby is a favorite book of many George MacDonald's fans. I'll out myself as it being one of my less favorite books the thing, that re the thing that redeems that book to me is the character janet and well a couple other characters but i find gibby too unbelievable he's too perfect of a type of christ i, I just have a hard time believing a person like gibby ex would exist without it actually being christ i've had the good fortune to know um, a couple of very good people. So it was probably easier for me to, to make that leap. Again, the, the lady I mentioned earlier, my favorite person ever, Rebetta, was very much, she could have stepped into a George novel. 
and there was very little thought of self and a whole lot of thought about others. So that part didn't really stop me. Is it common? No. Um, but for me, it's not unbelievable because I've known some exemplary people. I like the character Gibby a lot, what he's able to do with that. I think he shows a, a lot of great, you know, don't get me wrong, I don't hate the novel by any means. I, I think he does use that perfect character Gibby as a way to show other people's imperfections and the way other people are... I don't know, astonished by, put off by such a person. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think there's a lot of great ex scenes in Gibby. I just have a hard time with it as a whole. And and there's nothing wrong with that. I agree. It's fair enough. Um, it's fair enough when he's healthy and all the things that he gives him attributes in, in the mountains of being able to get from place to place and are almost supernatural yeah sometimes yep. with the flood and and the the positions sure. conditions sure. that he sets for him and the things that happen are they are remarkable in that way yeah and how impressively he is strengthened uh by nature as soon as he leaves this city and head, heads up the mountain following the stream how his health just he's just invigorated very rapidly which I think was a great point that McDonald was making, but again, it's just a little too unbelievable to me. It's just a, a little too far. <laughs> but also in keeping with George's experience and he get going places for his health and it would make a difference. Yeah. Um, which was not uncommon for the time. People were continually in America sent out West. Yep. So they could have drier climates. Yeah. Um, and, it, it, yep. and similarly uh, in the novel Guild Court, which I think is one of the lesser read novels, there's uh, uh, at least a whole chapter. Anyway, a big major scene or portion of, of, of that novel. There's an outing where they purposely take uh, a young girl out of the city, out to the countryside. And she sees the sky and the grass and everything for the first time in her life. And it has a really profound effect on her. So, yeah, George, that's uh, maybe you would even call that a trope that George uses in quite a few of his novels. Yep. So science was just starting too, um, in in a significant way to transition and change. Um, and as George was schooled in science, I think some of those transitions come across too. So while that you know they send you to a drier climate to help your lungs, is probably good advice. The ice baths that they gave people is probably bad advice. So I think he was a man of his time, and that you get a mix of of those things in his thinking as well. Mm -hmm. You can't help but being a man of your time to at least some extent. But one of the things I love about George is how open he was to science and religion coexisting. And he has lots of intelligent and educated people in his books, um, as well as the wise common folk. Yeah. Um, he was also an early proponent of women's rights and women's education. There's a whole lot of forward thinking mm -hmm. um, in his books and in his thoughts. And and as uh, you said earlier, he was always charitable toward every type of person, and he didn't make anybody 100% evil. When there's an atheist character, they're uh, a real person with good attributes about them. They just happen to not be a person of faith, right? So, yeah, he, he, so treats, some of the villains come he close. treated everybody quite charitably, except 
people who really were villains. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess. But but it wasn't because of their. Uh, I, I guess my point is it wasn't because because they were an atheist they were a villain or because they were a rich person they were a villain. Maybe uh, may, maybe some of these riches had something a bit to do with it. But it was it was to me it's always quite clear that it that it's the person's character that that is why they're evil not not their station in life or their these other attributes uh, donald grant the villain in in that book is uh mm, he's something i can't think of his name now at the moment i'm blanking on it as well <laughs> but uh yeah he's something and of course um that's oh that that's a um not a recurring character type exactly in his book but maybe you could argue it is but but certainly a, a recurring theme along with some characters is drug use right addiction so that shows up in donald grant that shows up in robert falconer uh i guess in both those books quite prominently and it shows up in several other novels as well i guess during george's time was the big opium crisis right was it a crisis? Did they use it frequently to, uh, when people were ill? Yeah, it was frequently used as a medication, but it was also heavily abused. And, and they had dens, uh, yeah. opium dens in the Victorian age. Yep. Well, he has and, a number of characters that have issues with alcohol, right? Too that that play significant roles along the way in one way or another, mm-hmm. uh, and the the whole concept of the way that he describes the sort of gin joints, I guess they were, I don't know. And some of the characters that, that the other characters meet in those places. Yeah. He didn't try to sugarcoat any of that stuff. I don't think he was probably limited some compared to how open many things are today, but he has characters that become pregnant before they're married and are taken care of by people or not in some cases, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, orphans, certainly. Well, Salted with fire is a good example of story with somebody having baby out of wedlock. And I guess a rough shaking is a great example of an orphan. Yeah. I was thinking a rough, rough shaking with the orphan as well. How do you think, McDonald thought about the characters in developing them. One of the reasons I asked that, I, I think about composing, and I had a composition professor that's, that talked about the gestures that you write in music have a certain character. And he said, you have to think about what color they are and how they'll behave in certain ways and how they respond to other things or how they inspire something or interact with other things. And I think that character development is very similar to that. Probably true of many arts with light and shade and darkness with painting and and drama and novels and so on. How much did he develop the characters, do you think, beforehand? And how much do you think they worked their their life into themselves as he wrote them do you think before by beforehand do you mean before he sat down to write the novel or what well, during ask, the course of a novel yeah so the way i ask that is i i think there are 
Well, interestingly, I, I haven't thought about this before, but I, I think this is probably true. I know for a fact there are many points in the novels where he, I'll, I'll use the word paints, where he really, when as he introduces a character, he paints a, he, he goes to actually great lengths sometimes, even like multiple paragraphs, describing how the person looks, how tall they are, what their hair color is, what their ambiance is um their nose their you know quite quite a lot of description and but other characters he gives almost no description of and what just crosses my mind is it his primary characters probably get the least upfront description but the other people that they interact with get those very verbose initial descriptions i think as a general rule that's how he treated the characters in introducing them to you does, does that follow frequently with describes experience? describes a new character through the eyes of the character that he's discussing mm -hmm. and that's another interesting thing is he has a certain number of novels that are first person they're they're written from one person's perspective and he has the others that are objective that he's the author looking in on it and creating things from different angles to tell us what's going on Annals of a Quiet Neighborhood is first person. It's right. what this guy sees, and he can only, as a result of that in the writing of it, he can only explain what this guy either sees or hears about and how he interacts with them and how they interact with him. So there's no reason for him to, to try to describe this guy because the guy is describing who he sees as he sees them, for example. So I think a lot of times he started with people he actually knew. And I'm not saying it's a one-to-one, -one, but he would be inspired by people he knew and model characters after them. And then they kind of become their own thing. So through extrapolation, through knowing where you want your story to go or where you want that character to go. So you could take the mean guy at the grocery store and turn him into the addict if you didn't have an actual addict that you were modeling it on. So I think some of that happens. The other thing that happens when you write, um, and I've scribbled my whole life, is when you get when you really develop a character, it starts speaking on its own, kind of. Oh, I totally agree. So, I've I've seen that happen myself writing. So I as, agree with as you. so as you're writing, it it kind of has its own voice, and if you misstep, that piece of your brain will be like, no, that character wouldn't say that. He would say this instead, which can take you to new and interesting direction. I think so. I've written stuff before where I've had somebody in a certain spot looking at something and realized there was somebody standing behind them. And I didn't know who it was until I had them turn around that I wrote them turning around and looking at the person and starting to describe them. That's yep. been really interesting. Delightful. So it is connected to the creative process, I think. And he definitely did that before you get to that good part there's a whole lot of kind of cranking it out. And then I think once you get to that place, it flows a lot more smoothly out of you. And then you can go back and fix whatever you need to fix afterward. But I see a lot of places and a lot of people reflected from George's life in books. Um, so I think that was often his starting point. What if this person were in this situation? You think he knew a Pullworth? I do. I think he probably knew a couple, but Certainly his father was a model for some of the wise men, but at college there were gentlemen he followed there who certainly 
carried wisdom with them and passed it to, to him back and forth. Do I think it was a, a midget or a little person? Probably not. But if you're going to, you know, pick something to limit a character and actually bless the character, that's certainly something you could pick. Yeah, I'm sure what you've said is true that a lot of the characters are modeled after specific people that he knew. I believe there are also composite characters. And in many cases, those are not super well-developed characters or kind of stereotypical characters like a, you know, like a Duke or, you know, a rich um, high class person that's a secondary character in the novel. But in other cases, they're pretty key characters and quite heavily developed. For example, uh, Duncan in Malcolm. Yeah. Uh, that character is very rich, very well explored, very well executed. He's a, he's a believable character, but he's also, uh, I believe, a composite character of kind of like the quintessential Scotsman holding on to the past sort of a guy. McDonald would have known Pipers, though. True. The Pipers were very important to the clans, and each town apparently had the main Piper who, in small towns, which maybe Huntley was that. I don't know what size Huntley in that area would have been. But the Piper, he would have known lots of Pipers, I would think. And possibly even Pipers who owned Dirks. <laughs> oh, yeah. Probably most of them. Yeah. Just in case the reviews weren't good. <laughs> so those are definitely some archetypes we can what, we can explore in individual books. Why why do you think he used such a high percentage of his characters are youths? Either, I guess in Gibby's case, very youthful, but very often, you know, right on the threshold, coming of age, you know, young adulthood, eighteen to twenty years old. Is it because that's such a transitionary? time of life that he used that character so often there's a lot of old characters as well though you're thinking in terms of the i'm, I'm talking the main about characters. yes i'm talking about primary characters primary characters well and gibby starts out as how old is gibby when it starts six seven eight years old something so, like that so something something like that yeah and and the the boy and the rough shaking he's pretty young too isn't he yeah he's around five or something something like that. And when we meet Donald, he's a little older than Gibby, but he's he's pretty young in in that case. He's a teen, probably, yeah. Something like that. And other key characters that we're talking about, like Polworth and Janet, uh, Duncan, the Cobblers, and so on, were well into their years. So I think, I actually think there's quite a blend of, of characters. I think that, I mean, one of the reasons with the younger is that, that the other part of that is a, a male falling in love with a, a female that he finds and the whole courting process and how they they find one another and and something works out with that over a period of time. Or the opposite, where it's the, the character is a younger woman who is has make is making choices and and they it, it appears that oftentimes they don't end up being married i'm trying to think of who isn't hester one of those hester yeah and who's who's the other one the other girl who's 
who does things with fabrics and that. Mary Marston. Yeah, Mary Marston. And and they would they sound like they're fairly young. Yeah, Mary's and, and, Mary's clearly a, a a young very young adult. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I don't I don't dispute that there are a number of a, a wide range of ages of his characters, but I still think there's quite a heavy focus on young adults. So Mary, Robert Falconer, of course, Robert Falconer uh, starts earlier in his life, but the key portion of the book is about his young adulthood. Malcolm, Donald, Wilfred, Alec, Alexa, Adela, Kirsty, Thomas, Cosmo, Ian, Hugh. All of those are the primary character of the novel they appear in, and they're all around 20 years old. He's also looking backwards um, as he's inspired by events in his own life and the lives of people he knew. So he's looking backwards. You're going to get some youth from that. Mm -hmm. And then as he progressed, he's having kids and watching them develop and grow. But part of it is also because you're less set. So if he's going to have people in transitionary, then then they have to be at a point where they're going to be making those choices less at the end result of those choices. But I think some of it is just biographical as far as not one for one for his life, but because he's looking backwards as a relatively young man when he starts writing. So he's going to look to what was my youth like, what was formative as I came through. The other piece is Victorian novels often have you know, a, a youthful beginning going through whatever the end of the book is, spanning years of people's lives. So some of it was just the form that was common as well. Right. The other part of that is that there are characters who seem to remain in the initial setting and others that move more, that move around. And that's like Annals starts out with him being in this town marshmallows is that what they call that town in annals and he marries the woman that lives in the castle and they're there for the, basically their lives it seems to me they go off the seaboard parish takes place in another location and then the last book is isn't it the vicar's daughter that his daughter writes about him and what's going on with the people in their older age but I think they're still living in in marshmallows in that area. Which was also pretty common. We we kind of take for granted in the modern age being able to move around more and go great distances. Um, and people really didn't for most of human history. You kind of stuck around, unless you were going to war, you really stuck around where you were born, where your family was. Um, and people didn't range that far out for the most part. And things like ex exploration and war would be where you would hear about someplace else. Hmm. And that's even early, early American culture, which is kind of the reflective of European culture. There are communities um, that I grew up around where there are multi-generations of people who've never been 50 miles sure. from hometown. Yeah, that's my I, mom. I, I, live, <laughs> um, I live inland a ways, but just over an hour drive to the coast. And there are people... Plenty of people that live around me who have never been to the coast, and they're adults. Right. It's just amazing to me, but it's a different life, I guess. That's right. So a lot of a lot of that is reflective of the time, but but again, as we mentioned before, there was the industrial revolution. Some of that was changing, so there was more 
movement, but not necessarily mostly, terribly far. But mostly from country to to city. Yeah. And vastly different conditions. So I think it's pretty clear that George McDonald was no respecter of persons or types of persons. Just about every type of person. Maybe it's worth noting, almost every one of those types of character that we, we uh, named before, tutors, atheists, bad priests, <laughs> suitors, truth seekers, rich people, etc. Almost every one of those, there's at least one novel where that is actually the description of the key character, not just a secondary character. He treated every type of person with quite a lot of respect, as noted before. And went out of his way to interact with that wide range of people. Which makes me believe that must be how he lived his life, personally. He certainly uses his characters to carry forward all the stories. And that's that's a big part of the novels. Is, this is a story. And like you're saying, Dan, a lot of the aspects of transitions with people's lives, of going from being a child to an adult, to from single to being married, from uneducated to educated, from something else to something else as it is, or from starting at an older age and then getting beat up by somebody and dying, like the cobbler and Donald Grant. And the story really is, I mean, almost all these are some plot and some movement, of course, in the story, but the story really is, as we noted, I guess, in our first discussion about relationships, right? So it's it's all these characters exist so that the relationship between them can be explored. How the truth seeker interacts with the wise person and the atheist and the tutor or you know other combinations like that and develops the relationships with them. And it's more internal journey as opposed to external journey. Exactly. Which may make it harder to film someday. <laughs> yeah several of these novels not if it not has make... a good text not if it has a good good uh story and writer <laughs> perhaps it's hard to imagine several of these novels as as uh movies though i got my fingers I... crossed for the bbc to do something yeah i suppose that he would have been able to see a lot of these stories on a stage though he was seems to be very theatric certainly when you think about how much he admired shakespeare and apparently his family put plays on frequently of different mm -hmm. things. Didn't they do a Pilgrim's Progress frequently as a family? Yep. Yep. Something like that. And uh, they they love stories in their house. I mean, maybe that's something the three of us share too. I've always loved stories and imagining things and sleeping under the stars. If he could have, I think he would have composed music for his poetry there's another one that's in some of them are the musicians, the organists and people that go to the piano and play and sing. And he uses music as a character at times too, from his, his viewpoint. Yeah. Organs, pianos, alien harps, bagpipes, fiddles. One of the other things I, I particularly enjoyed relating to music was in Falconer um, where fiddles were going to, lead everyone down a dark path. And when I first read that, uh, I just started laughing because that argument has carried over generationally. So then it was, you know, fiddles, and then it became jazz or blues or rock or rap or whatever form 
is currently going, but the arguments were essentially the same. So there's also kind, are. Of, kind of a timelessness to some of that, that the people haven't changed and our ways of being goofy at one another haven't changed a whole lot either. He was certainly aware of nothing being new under the sun and believed that, and yet that all things are new because they're new to the individual who's experiencing them. That's a common thread in there. And that's where maybe the wise people see that because they've already been through it and remember it yet. And the young people don't listen to it because they don't believe that could possibly be the case. <laughs> Indeed. And then we all inherited uh, Grandfather George. Exactly. Yeah. In a way, I, it's interesting how, how people talk about him like that. number of people refer to him as grandfather, number as uncle. Okay. Yeah, I just see him as kindred mm -hmm. when I read him. That's that's what I see as somebody who's kindred. My wise brother. So are we going to do quotes for wrapping up this time? Sure. Any theme yeah. or just favorite quotes? Uh, well, we didn't plan it ahead of time, so we didn't. Let's not limit it. But we probably should do that at some point. I don't know if this was one that we already put in or not. You guys might remember. When the pilgrim of the truth comes on his journey to the region of the parable, he finds its interpretation. It is not a fruit or a jewel to be stored, but a well spring by the wayside. That's from the last farthing. Yeah. It is. I'll choose a quote that has a bit to do with uh, a bit of our conversation earlier. So we noted how there are often rich people as characters in the novels and that class play the role. And that quite often poor people are main characters. Anyway, here's a, here's a quote from Warlock of Glen Warlock. The first question is not how to do good with money, but how to keep from doing harm with it. Whether rich or poor, a man must first of all do justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly with his God. Then, if he be rich, God will let him know how to spend. There must be ways in which, even now, a man may give the half or even the whole of his goods to the poor without helping the devil. Good stuff. Mine's loosely connected as well. You had mentioned the, the bad priests earlier. Um, this is from Annals of a Quiet Neighborhood uh, about the reverse of that. It said, now, sir, I do believe you mean in my shop what you say in your pulpit. That's a great one. That interaction with those two guys is delightful, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, I really like that. One of the best friendships i think in the novels hmm. yeah that's a good one so the other thing i i thought earlier and then forgot um when we were talking about the goodness of characters and believability or not believability part of the power in george mcdonald to me in writing characters like that as well as is it inspires me to be better than i am so that hopefully 
you know, what I say in a church setting or what I say in a prayer meeting is what I'm living. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think that if McDonald challenges, that's what happened when Lewis read him and continued to, I think. He challenged what he already thought he knew. And we were in a discussion yesterday. James was in there, and, and part of the things that people were saying was they were trying to get around being challenged by what they were reading by uh, making certain compromises, I think. And that's a pretty common thing for us to, to compromise according to our pretense, our what we know at a given time and our sense of some ways security and who we are in in self, and that's something he's constantly discussing about, by all means, do the right thing according to your own light, but don't stay put. Continue. I was trying to find a quote here that Dell just brought to mind, but I'm not finding it as quick as I wanted to. Oh, here it is. Nothing is so ruinous to progress in which effort is needful as satisfaction with apparent achievement. So yeah, George was always calling on us to not be satisfied with ourselves. Yeah, truer than that. Yeah. In one of the books, one of Michael Phillips's, uh, what does he call them? Redactions or transcriptions, something. He has a character saying or him saying within it, like with his interjections, McDonald's interjections, our call is to be always content and never satisfied. I've always liked that one. Which is very similar to his quote that God is easily pleased, but hard to satisfy. Agreed. We want to thank everyone for joining us for this installment of Making Friends with George MacDonald. Please join us next time where we'll discuss all things GM. Talk to you then. Bye.